Hey everybody, how's it going? This is Jordan Pacheco from the Glad Trad Podcast. Hope you're doing well. And this is another segment of Trad Reads where myself, Rudy, or us both kind of go through and recommend a book that's on our radar or something that we've been reading and something that can be nurturing, especially for the uh, traditional Catholic uh, that is inside you. And so today I wanted to talk about one of my favorite authors and one of my favorite reads, and that is uh, In Defense of Sanity by G.K. Chesterton. And what this actually is, is this is an Ignatius Press published book that is a collection of the choice cuts, the very best essays of G.K. Chesterton. For those that don't know who G.K. Chesterton is, he was a prolific writer and absolutely profound Catholic at around the turn of the century. So the late 1800s going into really his his main heyday was the 1900s and 1910s and into the 20s. And he was a writer, a columnist, uh, and a commentator in the United Kingdom at the time. You might have read his Orthodoxy, which is one of his most popular books, uh, his essays, of course, which we'll get to. And you may know some of his series like Father Brown. And so maybe you've seen the BBC series or the Alec Guinness movie, but Father Brown is this priest in, uh, in England who goes around solving uh, mysteries, essentially. He's like a detective priest. So uh, the BBC has a really, really great series. There was one prior, I think, made in the 70s too, but uh, Chesterton is an extraordinarily uh, fun and easygoing, as well as a, a very deep thinker and a great writer. Uh, he, he, his route is, um, kind of apologetics with a smile, kind of the sort of, um, this sort of humorous perspective and the joys of the faith. So that's one of the reasons why he, I think, holds such a special place in the heart of especially very traditional Catholics. If you want to really go to somebody who seems to be such a mainstay for classical education, there is a GK Chesterton Academy actually here in Denver that is a classical high school. Uh, there's a reason why he's essentially the, the, the de facto patron saint of classical education in the modern era. So um, he didn't start out as a Catholic. Very interesting. Uh, but he was kind of agnostic-y growing up. He went to Anglicanism and then from there he hopped over and submitted uh, to the Pope across the Tiber. So uh, his journey, and you'll see this in Orthodoxy, if you ever read Orthodoxy, which I highly recommend, is incredible. But for Defense of Sanity, this was the first time I ever read G.K. Chesterton. I'd heard about him floating around in the ether. And uh, Charles Colomb describes him as this kind of champagne uh, sip when it comes to his writing. You can almost overdose on too much Chesterton. Uh, he writes in this really, really distinct style. It's it's very deep, and it can also be very funny and, and humorous. And on one hand, he, he hits a very serious topic with all the pomp and circumstance it deserves. Then on the other hand, he might change gears real quick and kind of poke fun at something which the modern writers of his time were thinking, oh, this is a really big thing to discuss. Um, but what's interesting about Chesterton and something that's important for traditional Catholics, before I get into some of his samples of his work, is that, again, he's writing at the turn of the century. But what he's writing about could very well be uh, written today, actually. At this time in England, especially and all over the world, there were conversations about colonialism and empire. There were conversations about women in the workforce and feminism. There's conversations about gender uh, dysphoria. There's conversations about socialism. There's conversations about what the purpose of the state is and the role of increasing or diminishing religion. So... It's just a good reminder, especially for traditional Catholics, that we are connected very deeply with our ancestors. Chesterton has a very famous quote, which is that tradition is the democracy of the dead. 
that it is through adhering to tradition, through reverencing tradition, that we actually have this deep connection to our parents and our grandparents and our forefathers. Uh, we do indeed stand on the shoulders of giants. The first thing I wanted to read is an essay. This is called The Architect of Spears. This is written in 1912. So this is actually on Gothic architecture. In this essay, uh, Chesterton is musing over this sudden, stark Gothic church that has appeared out of this essentially uh, very beautiful, pleasant-looking English countryside. This is what he writes. The truth about Gothic is, first, that it is alive, and second, that it is on the march. It is the church militant. It is the only fighting architecture. All its spires are spears at rest, and all its stones are stones asleep in the catapult. In that instant of illusion, I could hear the arches clash like swords as they crossed each other. The mighty and numberless columns seemed to go swinging by like the huge feet of imperial elephants. The graven foliage wreathed and blew like banners going into battle. The silence was deafening with all the mingled noises of a military march. The great bell shook down as the organ shook up its thunder. The thirsty-throated gargoyles shouted like trumpets from all the roofs and pinnacles as they passed, and from the lectern in the core of the cathedral, the eagle of the awful evangelist crashed his wings of brass. Extraordinarily descriptive. And I actually, Rudy and I had a theme on, on um, the church militant on the march in one of our early episodes, like episode one or episode two, and that's actually the idea that I got from, that the church militant is actually not a stagnant thing. It's not a piece of the museum to hide away, but it's on the march. And so Chesterton envisions, if you look at Gothic architecture, I mean, it's so stark and vivid and it's, it's almost violent against the sky, but that is what it represents, the church militant moving across the plain, moving in the world. Um, I wanted to read a second excerpt. This is from uh, kind of one of his more humorous pieces. This is from uh, Don't. It's called, it's from 1910, so you can get an idea at the time. Uh, and this is essentially just kind of a, a, a this is his, his, his 10 rules or 12 rules for life, right? This is the things that you ought not to do in kind of a humorous fashion. So I just wanted to read one of them because obviously you should check out the rest. Number one, don't use a noun and then an adjective that crosses out the noun. An adjective qualifies, it cannot contradict. Don't say, give me a patriotism that is free from all boundaries. It is like saying, give me a pork pie with no pork in it. Don't say, I look forward to that larger religion that shall have no special dogmas. It is like saying, I look forward to that larger quadruped who shall have no feet. A quadruped means something with four feet. And a religion means something that commits a man to some doctrine about the universe. Don't let the meek substantive be absolutely murdered by the joyful, exuberant adjective. So... <laughs> There's just like seven rules in here, and he talks about um, just in this little essay. It's just so much joy. The very last one he talks about is I love so much. I just want to read it. This is number seven, and it says, "Don't say, oh, don't say that primitive man knocked down a woman with a club and carried her away. Why on earth should he? Does the male sparrow knock down the female sparrow with a twig? Does the male giraffe knock down the female giraffe with a palm tree? Why should the male have had to use any violence at any time in order to make the female a female?" Why should the woman roll herself in the mire lower than the sow or the she-bear and profess to have been a slave where all these creatures were creators, where all these beasts were gods? Do not talk such bosh, I implore you. So the final essay that I wanted to read actually comes a little bit later in what I would consider like the prime of Chesterton. This is 1932. So we've read things before World War I and before kind of the ills of the Great Depression, the Roaring Twenties, uh, the the 
greater rise of feminism and communism and socialism, all these kinds of things. So this is um, called Marriage and the Modern Mind, and it comes from 1932, and this is something that he says very about the state, as we kind of think of it nowadays. This modern notion about the state is a delusion. It is not founded on the history of real states, but entirely on reading about unreal or ideal states, like the utopia of Mr. Wells. The real state, though a necessary human combination, always has been and always will be far too large, loose, clumsy, indirect, and even insecure to be the home of the human young who are to be trained in the human tradition. If mankind had not been organized into family, it would never have had the organic power to be organized into commonwealths. Human culture is handed down in the customs of countless households. It is the only way in which human culture can remain human. The households are right to confess a common loyalty or federation under some king or republic. But the king cannot be the nurse in every nursery, nor even the government become the governess in every schoolroom. Look at the real story of the states, modern as well as ancient, and you will see a dissolving view of distant and uncontrollable things, making up most of the politics of the earth. Take the most populous center. China is now called a republic. In consequence, it is ruled by five contending armies and is much less settled than when it was an empire. What has preserved China has been its domestic religion. South America, like all Latin lands, is full of domestic graces and gaieties, but it is governed by a series of revolutions. We ourselves may be governed by a dictator, or by a general strike, or by a banker living in New York. Government grows more elusive every day, but the traditions of humanity support humanity, and the central one is the tradition of marriage. And the essence of it is that a free man and a free woman choose to found on earth the only voluntary state, the only state which creates and which loves its citizens. So long as these real responsible beings stand together, they can survive all the vast changes, deadlocks, and disappointments which make up mere political history. But if they fail each other, it is as certain as death that the state will fail them. That's 1932. So fast forward to 2021, when there is such a unbridled attack on the family, the nuclear family, the institution of marriage as a sacrament, as the bond that unites man and woman as husband and wife under God for the purpose of procreation. That's 1932. And so a lot of times Chesterton's writing not only stretches into our own era, but it speaks very deeply to the problems and solutions that we face now. Um, there are some who venerate him as a saint. I, I don't know uh, about his cause for uh, canonization, but I do know that his writings are, for me, such a great comfort and a great blessing, um, as well as just a great detox. And again, I, I emphasize this again, um, but as traditional Catholics in the 21st century, a lot of times we're kind of searching for that historical root. You know, Chesterton's just such a brilliant mind and I think should be such a vital resource for us to go to as Catholics and also as those seeking to reclaim kind of an authentic tradition of thought and grammar and rhetoric and logic and so many things that are being resurgent in classical education in particular, but so many things that the culture is just absolutely devoid from, that debate is devoid from. We don't read and we don't write like Chesterton did. And so to kind of discover an author who's able to present himself well enough to our own modern ears because we're so dulled nowadays and yet also just has this richness of a fine wine is uh, is a one in a million sort of thing. 
So that's GK Chesterton. Thank you guys so much for listening. If you liked what you heard, please don't forget to like, comment, subscribe. If you would like to support Rudy and I and the Glad Tribe podcast endeavors, the most important thing you could do is pray for us. But also, we have a Patreon down there. So if you want to support us further, we have some really cool perks down there. So go ahead and check out our Patreon. And if you could support us financially or any other method, we would absolutely be uh, totally grateful for it. So God bless you and Mary keep you. Adios. <laughs>